0: Mark 10, I'll read from verse 32 to the, uh, to, chapter, uh, to the end of the chapter in verse 52. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, He recovered his sight and followed him on the way well let me ask you to let's start just by looking at the first uh passage from verse 32 to 34 and i'll ask you for some of your observations on the road to jerusalem and as you're glancing back over those passages i just want to say something is one of the things i I really love about the gospel narratives is um the way in which they portray vivid detail and yet uh do it very simply with uh, simple details that are easy to overlook. And yet the details, uh, when we stop and reflect on, on some of the specific things that are part of this account, we see that they are uh, pregnant with uh, meaning, that they are uh, f- uh, full of profound insight as we consider uh, what's taking place at this stage in the gospel narrative. So let me turn it to you and ask you for, uh, for observations. Let me uh, remind you of some those simple who, what, where, when, why questions. Um, no observation is too obvious or um, too plain uh, but what are some of the things that you see uh, in this text uh, when you think about those particular questions what is going on here well, uh, and Yeah so you've got a couple things there is that in this um, in this context it's not just, Jesus and the 12. I think you'll see that especially um, uh, uh, down in verse 46 when they come to Jericho. And he's leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. Um, but you know, certainly they're, they're not, it's not just these 13 guys. But there are others with them. And, and um, as you, you noted, Mike, as there's fear and amazement. What's causing that fear and amazement? Yeah, so uh, how... Becca said his determination to go to Jerusalem, and and I think that's a great uh, way to put it. What details in the text lead you to... uh, to to interpret what Jesus is doing as determination? Yeah. That that little detail that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And it's like... um, you're trying to get somewhere, and this one guy, like he's, he's in a real hurry. I remember a story some years ago um, in, the, in the newspapers when the U.S. first invaded Iraq in, in 2003. Uh, you might know the name General Mattis. General James Mattis was the Marine Corps general who was in charge of that invasion. and uh, They were on their way to Baghdad, and, and um, very famously one of his colonels was not moving fast enough for his liking, and so uh, the colonel said it couldn't be done what he was asking for, and so he relieved that colonel of command and uh, uh, put someone other else in place who would get it done. Um, and uh, it was an uh, example of his fierce determination to get this mission done. It's kind of this knowledge that in that particular situation, what had to happen was he, they, the, the, the troops needed to get to Baghdad as fast as possible to win this thing as quickly as possible. And uh, that, that story just sticks in my mind. Uh, you know, you think of that similar... Similarly, here, you've got an example of Jesus going to Jerusalem. He's already told us very clearly what going to Jerusalem means. We've got two predictions, and we're here at the third prediction that kind of um, frames this whole unit. um, And uh, each time as he's predicted what's going to take place, he's talked about being delivered in the hands of men, being killed, and then on the third day, rising. And it's quite clear that this must take place in Jerusalem. And, you know, well, here's Jesus hurrying along the road to get this over with. Not, you know, that sounds the wrong way, to to accomplish this mission. And the disciples are thinking that, you know, they want to draw this out. They they don't want to, you know, they they know the danger that Jerusalem poses to them as well. Um, They're in no hurry to get there. so good. that Yeah, he was walking ahead of them, and there's this, just this subtle indication of his determination um, as they go up to Jerusalem. What else? Uh, so we see the amazement and the fear that follows. That, that, that's, that's really presented by Mark as a response to uh, what Jesus is doing. They're amazed at his, uh, his determination, and they're fearful in their own right. So what, is, what does Jesus do in this situation as... Uh, as they manifest this fear and amazement, tells them why they, should they shouldn 't be afraid. So another very good uh, summary interpretation of these things, that uh, so what, what leads you to the conclusion then that in details in the text that uh, what he 's about to say uh, should assuage their fear is not incite further fear. Oh, they should be afraid. Okay. Why should they be afraid? Well, they're, they're going to lose their but I'll try to answer your question, which is probably the more one. <laughs> They should be afraid, but they sh- also should not be afraid. Let's, he's going to rise. He's going to rise, yeah. So look at the vivid detail here in verse 33 and following as he makes this prediction. And, and it, not to rush ahead. Notice, he takes the 12 and he began telling to tell them what was to happen to him, right? So, you know, sometimes we talk about the Old Testament and how it predicts the suffering of, of Christ, suffering of the Messiah. And people who don't believe this, they'll, they'll say, where, where does it show me? And we've talked a bit in, in the past about texts like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, uh, but they are enigmatic. They are veiled. They are difficult to uh, connect to what Christ is doing but at the very least we have to say the most the clearest most direct plainest predictions of his death and resurrection come from his own mouth he says it very clearly this is what's gonna happen to me um, and so here we see this third uh, this third uh, picture which the, the detail is just really really vivid I, I want to dwell on this and just encourage you all to kind of draw out some of the details of what he says must happen what are some of the things that he says have to happen to him, Stephen? I see that you're you're ready to say something. Okay. De- yeah. yeah so we could we could say answering the who question, we've got uh, this concerns one, and he, here again he refers to himself as the son of man, which is a, a key term, key, a key way to, that he refers to himself. always in the predictions in Mark's gospel, it's the Son of Man, and we've got the op- op- opposition then identified as chief priests and scribes and and then they hand him over to the Gentiles, so there's a very clear description of what's going to take place. And if we just go back for a minute and compare this with earlier predictions, we're going to see some commonalities and then some, you know, some details that are more vivid. Just let me read the first prediction back in chapter 8. And he began to teach them, this is verse 31 of chapter 8, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So we have a uh, that, that language of the son of man we have reference to suffering many things kind of summary way of describing those sufferings we have rejection by the elders and chief priests and the scribes so the religious leaders in israel are identified the fact that he must be killed and after three days rise again which is it's pretty vivid and cl- but it's also very summer, uh, uh very much a summary then you turn over and you look at the second prediction in verse 30 of chapter nine They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he is killed, after three days he will rise. So here we have a slight variation, um, even, uh, even more general. But he does refer to himself again as the Son of Man. Instead of talking about his rejection, here he talks about being delivered. And it's not just into any particular group, but just the hands of men. The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And then when he is killed after three days, he will rise. So you see that description. But then here we come to chapter 10. We see the most vivid description of them all. He identifies where they're going. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, right? That there's that. It's got to take place here. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. There's the delivery into the hands of men. So now we have the chief priests and scribes identified. They will condemn him to death. So there's a condemnation that comes from them. But then they further deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles, which we understand will be the Romans, Roman leaders. See how specific he's being and how vivid he's being in the description of what must take place. How he indicates how clearly he knows what he must go to do. And then in verse 34, how does he describe what they will do to him when he's in the hands of the Gentiles? Before even they kill him. What are some of the verbs that, that you see there? They'll mock him. They'll spit on him. They'll flog him and then kill him, right? You've got three, you know, so you, you now you have some uh, description provided to the suffer many things that we had in the first prediction. He'll suffer many things and now it's, there's some very vivid, Description of what that suffering will look like spitting, mocking, flogging, and killing. And of course, in the crucifixion accounts, we'll see all of those things happen. Um, and when we come to them in Luke during our sermons, um, you'll see quite vividly how the people mocked him. It's not just the Gentiles, it's the, the scribes and the Pharisees will, will participate in that mocking behavior. Um, it's quite striking. But of course so there, there is, as, as Matt pointed out,, yeah, there, in some sense, there is cause for fear. <laughs> All those things you guys are worried about, yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> but on the other hand, there's, um, they ought not to be afraid. They ought to have that kind of firm conviction that Jesus has that they won't, um, because of what he always says at the end of the, at the conclusion of these uh, predictions, and after three days, he will rise. Uh, any further thoughts or observations? Any further questions on that? Becca? That's right. absolutely that's a wonderful application is that we we think about our lives we can't predict with the same vivid detail what things will suffer in this life I don't know if I'll uh, contract a terminal illness sometime in my life I don't know if I'll get in an accident at some point I don't know if I'll be persecuted and and martyred I don't know if the or if life will be quite good I don't know how my children will turn out when they're in their adult lives I don't none of those things I can predict with anything near the vivid accuracy that Christ depicts his own suffering and resurrection. But I do know this, that the pattern of his life is the pattern for my life and it's the pattern for your life. It doesn't mean that you must suffer in the extremity to the degree that he suffered. But he has told us quite clearly (coughs) that our lives will be patterned after his. We will face persecution and opposition whether that's insults or injury, or worse, we will face—excuse <clears throat> me—we will face um, the tr- just normal trials of life that, uh, that that are common to humans and their weakness. Which he himself endured all those things too. We will uh, be tried and tempted, uh, even in extreme situations when we're hungry or sleepless. He himself faced all those things too, and yet we can look at that through all of that suffering. We can be confident that He will bring us through it to a glorious resurrection life. That He will bring it, bring us through it to eternity, uh, even you know through death, uh, in that intermediate state where we are with Him, and then in the final state of a resurrection life uh, where there's no tears and there's no sorrows and there's no anguish, there's no difficulty. Because He's what what He said concerning Himself came true in every degree. So what He said concerning us. <clears throat> we ought to trust to the same degree even if we don't have the same uh, the same detail in terms of what we will endure in all of our experiences it's very good, uh, Becca that was a very good application um, yes why does he always talk in the third person That's a great question. I don't necessarily have a direct, uh, a def- definitive answer. Um, I think it would it, it's, it's, a, it's a great question because it prompts me to think maybe there's something I need to go and look at patterns and study all the ways and w- all the times when Jesus speaks in first person and compare them with all the times he speaks in third person and how he does it. And I, um, now that you've piqued my interest, I'll probably do that and uh, get back to you. But I can say at least this is um, well, here, let me say a few things. Is the, the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they um, present some of these predictions differently. And, and I'm sure he makes more than three predictions on the road, and so that's why there's different accounts. But they, they each highlight specifically three. Um, but Luke's three are not quite exactly the same in, in the language as Mark's three. I think Mark's three are closer to Matthew's three predictions but they highlight different things and so sometimes we'll see some first person speech i think in luke but other times we often see the third person speech when he does that usually he uses some kind of very uh... important language like son of man so this language of son of man i think many of you know and or just you recall it comes from daniel chapter seven where daniel has this vision he sees all these uh... beasts that that are figures of human kingdoms to come some that exist and one that exists and some to come and then he sees a final vision where one like a son of man came to the ancient of days but he's he's a glorious son of man he's like rather like uh, the son of man we see in Christ in Revelation you know his eyes like flaming fire that kind of thing but he's one like a son of man and uh, he comes and he receives a kingdom without end from the Ancient of Days. And uh, there's a, that, that language is, I mean, there's, um, there's a lot to be said. There's a uh, two-volume work coming out from a great scholar just on that subject of Son of Man. That's one volume through. And I'm anticipating that second one with uh, eagerness. But I think that the, the, to simplify it all, to boil it down, is a couple things. Is one is the identification is drawn between Jesus and that figure. Who receives the kingdom? So this is really this contrast is really shocking. Because what Jesus is saying is that the one who receives this kingdom from the Father is going to be delivered into the hands of men and, and mocked and spit upon. And there's it's not it's incongruous. It's a, it doesn't the pictures don't seem to work together. Which is the descriptions. Um, this is why the disciples have so much trouble comprehending it. How is it that the Son of Man goes through that? But on the other hand, it, it it also, that language of son of man, does connect him with us in a, in, a, in a really important way. So that when Daniel, for instance, can say, I saw one like a son of man, he recognizes that this figure has a glory that's not typical of a, of a human being, of a son of Adam. And yet he's in some way he's like a son of Adam. And, and he's trying to understand and put this together and um, he can't. That doesn't come together until we see that the one who is the son of man is also the son of God that he is human and fully human and fully fully God Um, so all of that I think this is the idea why he in this particular use of third person uses that language of son of man he wants to draw these connections in the minds of his disciples so that they would understand that this same guy that they remember from Daniel chapter 7 is the same guy, that servant of the Lord that we see in Isaiah fifty-three, and the same suffering righteous, the righteous sufferer of Psalm twenty-two, and the same Davidic king of Second Samuel seven, and the same royal, royal priest of Psalm one hundred ten and the book of Zechariah and, and elsewhere. Like that, all of these different figures that we see in the Old Testament, they coalesce in one person. They're not separate, disparate guys. And um, I, I, so there's uh, you know, just my off-the-cuff kind of thoughts on why he uses this kind of language that at first is strange, but then when we start to see it, we say, okay, what, what's happening is there are connections being made. Instead of just saying, I have to do this, Jesus is, saying, is essentially saying in a simple way, in a concise way, I am that guy, son of man, and that guy, servant of the Lord, and that guy Davidic Christ and so on. Does that help at all? Still leaves you with some confusion and questions. Yeah, I think there is a there is a sense in which there is there is meant to be. No, they they don't understand it you know it quite yet. And and, and a, it, to sympathize with them, if we kind of step back and we you know just you know sit down this afternoon and read the Book of Revelation, it's all it's all clearly right there. <laughs> and it's not quite, you know, It's, it's you know, like that's pretty veiled uh, for it to be clearly right there. And I think then um, maybe we can sympathize with them a little bit um, as we understand, yeah, God has made certain things plain, which we will only understand their plainness in retrospect. And that's one of the things that makes Jesus so remarkable is he understood their plainness uh, beforehand. So that it can be done. We just don't do it quite so well. Um, so, so looking forward, I mean, we're going to see, as Tom brought up, as the the disciples' misunderstanding. I, you know, it, it's not Jesus' lack of plainness that, that is blinding them. It's their pride that's blinding them. Um, they can't see past their own noses because they're so full of themselves. And we would be the same. So we we need not condemn them. But look at this next uh, section uh, where James and John make their request of Jesus. I find it stunningly obtuse and, and presumptuous. And I, I don't know that it, it happened in, in immediacy, or like uh, the very next minute. Mark doesn't say that. It's the very next passage, next event that Mark chooses to present to our, our, um, our thoughts so that we will see these, the contrast between these things. But if we were there probably, there, you know, some time might have elapsed and we can understand how they uh, we didn't understand that, so we forgot about it. But now we're going to think about where we're going to sit in the kingdom again. Um, it, it, but regardless, it's stunningly obtuse. Um, yeah. Well, just think back to chapter 9. I mean, um, in, in chapter 9, before um, all of this took place, we had that discussion in verse 33 where they're arguing among, amongst one another who's going to be the greatest. And um, he teaches the 12 that that's not the way they're going to be thinking. And here two of the 12 come to him and say, we're going to cut through the arguments and we're going <laughs> to we're we're make sure we're the greatest. Um, not by arguing with those guys, but just by going to the guy who, who can give us the right and left hand seat. So let me ask you guys then to... to, to to share some observations. And as we look at this text, uh, we've observed a little bit about um, what strikes us. What is it that James and John uh, come in and really, what do they ask? What, what? Let's focus on the language, the specific terminology that they use. And there's two stages of the question. So yeah. What do you- Yeah, Karen, what what would you do when when Stephen and and Sarah were kids and they'd come to you and say, we want you to give us what we're about to ask you? (laughs) And, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, Tell me what you want first. That's right. Yeah, all kids, right? You know, we're going (laughs) to... And and that's actually applicable here, too. Okay. I did that, so... (laughs) Um, well you know uh, we see the same kind of uh, attempt to uh, uh, you know here i don 't think they understand themselves as dividing and conquering no, oh, just yeah no but it's good it 's a good illustration because they 're going to fail because they're going to see a kind of oneness of mind between the father and the son um, that they maybe didn't anticipate, but they asked that first stage of question. Uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> and he said to them, he didn't agree. He just said, "What do you want me to do for you?" Like, okay, just tell tell me what you want. So, what is it they ask for? To the guest would be the highest in honor. Yeah to sit at your right and your left when you come into your kingdom, right? You know, ironically, um, uh, this this is not the same event of coming into the kingdom, but when Jesus institutes the Last Supper, uh, there are two that are next to him. One is a beloved disciple, and one is Judas. (laughs) Uh, It's just an irony there, but there's another another place in Mark we'll look to where we're actually going to see there seems to be a reference back to this particular text. Um, and in, in any case, uh, yeah, they want to sit at his right and his left hand in your glory. Uh, and this, this is uh, the sense of when you come into your kingdom, when you're in your glory, we want to be right, in, right and left hand man, you know, your, your, your first two guys. All right, so what does Jesus say? You know what, you do not know what you are asking. You don't know what you're asking, okay? You they think they know. They're thinking kingdom, glory, throne, two seats on the right and left. And Jesus is saying, you have no idea what you're talking about. What, uh, what is, how does he describe uh, what he's about to undergo? What is, what, are the, what is the imagery that he uses? Drinking a cup and being baptized. Now, I've talked about this a little bit when we interpret the text and we look at Scripture. We do need to, uh, we'd need to learn to understand figurative language. And to be able to discern when something is figurative in nature. Usually it's very intuitive. Sometimes we convince ourselves that there's no such thing as a figure, you know, figures of, of speech or metaphors in the Bible. Um, and um, that prevents us from just being very intuitive about reading this. Obviously, Jesus is talking about something that's not like, uh, he's not going to grab a cup and then drink from, uh, he will do that at the Last Supper, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a different cup in a very figurative way that's consistent with the way that the prophets spoke of the cup of God's wrath they would talk about pouring out the cup of God's wrath and making people drink it and there was a time even Jeremiah was sent to various nations around uh, Judah and he was told to make them make that you know make Egypt drink the cup of God's wrath and if they refuse to drink the cup tell them that you have to the Lord said is is he going around Egypt walking around with this big cup and saying here have a drink no, no, no. It's a very figurative picture of the outpouring of God's judgment. You can't resist it and you can't, you can't um, undo it. And this is the cup that he's talking about is that he'll use this language later in Mark um, where he'll talk about his, you know, uh, uh, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if this cup can pass from me, then it pass, but not my will, but your will be done. Right so you see that figurative language. So what is the cup reference to? As I, I mentioned from the prophets, the wrath of God specifically in Jesus' life. That's right. So another, it's, a, it's another way of him speaking about the cross. And this, you know, when we think about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, this is important, the atonement. What did Jesus do? There's, there, even to this day, there's a lot of debate and there are a lot of people who dis- discuss what exactly was Jesus accomplishing when he went to the cross was he just uh, proving his victory over sin and death? Was he? Uh, was, was it to conquer Satan? Was it just to be an example of sacrificial love? The simple fact of the matter is, is that Jesus endured the wrath of Almighty God for our sake on the cross. And language like this, that he's to drink a cup, is an indication of that, um, that very thing. That, uh, that language is important to help us to see that said in, in a much more plain way, in an explicit way, in many other texts. We'll see it at the end of this passage in verse 45. Also in, for example, Paul's letters. But certainly here there's an indication of the wrath-bearing purpose of the cross in that language of the cup. The other language, the language of baptism. Again, it's a reference to the very same thing. In, in Luke we've seen Jesus say, I have a baptism to undergo. I have a baptism to go through and here again is where we need to see the connection between figures and, and, and things that we've seen in history and things that we ourselves have experienced. When Israel went through the Red Sea, Paul in 1 Corinthians will describe that as a baptism that they went through, passing through the, uh, the waters. And they were protected from judgment, and those waters of judgment came down upon the Egyptians. When Noah was in the ark, he went through the waters in that ark, and he was protected from judgment. And that judgment came down in that deluge upon all who were unbelievers in those days. And Peter will say that our baptism as Christians corresponds to this, to that event in in Noah's experience. And so you see these uh, water-like events of judgment where God's people are saved through that judgment corresponding to baptism. What do we do? What is our baptism? Uh, what is it a picture of, right? We, we talk about this from Romans 6 and from other passages that you were baptized into Christ's death and raised with him the newness of life. And so going into the water is like being buried with him and being raised with him so that he is like that saving ark. And he, is like, he is the one who is like the, the rock that led Israel in the wilderness, the one who protected them as well from the the flood that came upon the Egyptians' heads, and you see these things being connected, and you say, well where how is it that he protects us from this flood that is the wrath of God that should be poured out upon us, and it's by going into it himself, by enduring that baptism himself, by enduring that um, that judgment himself and it's it, you know uh, you can see this for instance in we, we did that study of Isaiah 53. If you read Isaiah uh, in that larger section of chapter 40 through 55, uh, commentators will call this um, the, new Isaiah, like the new Exodus passage, the new Exodus section of Isaiah, because he uses all kinds of Exodus imagery to remind the people of what, was, what God's going to do with you in the future is going to be like what he did with our people in the past when he brought them out of Egypt. So there's a lot of language that echoes that event. And the language that leads up to Isaiah fifty-two thirteen through fifty-three twelve is Exodus language that reminds us of those events that immediately preceded them going through the Red Sea. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, Isaiah says. For you will not go out in haste. Israel in the first Exodus went out in haste. And he says, because the Lord will go before you and the Lord will be your rear guard. Which reminds us of the cloud and the fire going before them and being behind them. And then that leads us right into the suffering of the servant of the Lord. And it leaves us with the impression that this corresponds to the Red Sea uh, deliverance. And it corresponds to, well, we also see the Passover sacrifice, the lamb. We start to see that all of these things that God did in the past through his people Israel are coming to their climactic uh, fulfillment in the person and work of Christ who becomes for us that saving ark who becomes for us the one who delivers us from the, uh, the, the flood that fell on the Egyptians, the one who delivers us ultimately from the wrath of God. Figured in all of those prior events but finally completed in what Christ does here. So he has a baptism to undergo. And he was saying to John and, and to James, you can't, you can't go through that baptism, right? You, you know, can, you, can you go through it? You can't right now. You will. They, say they think they're, we're, we're able to drink the cup. We are able to be baptized with the baptism with which you are to be baptized. And he says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. It seems to be the implication of, but not yet. I have to go first. You will endure. We talked about this suffering that... Uh, that point that becca brought up you you will endure the same things that christ himself endures but you won't endure them in the same for the same purpose in the same way you can't do it the way that he did it in the atoning way that he did it you can't go through it for yourself and you can't go through through it for another right only he could do that for us but they they don't quite get this yet says, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. James will be, I think, the first apostle martyred. Don't know what became of John, how he he died, whether of old age or... But he certainly was persecuted, was uh, exiled at one point to the island of Patmos. But this point in verse 40, to sit at my right and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now look at... Chapter 15. Turn over to chapter 15 and look at verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And the language is virtually identical. to what Jesus said in chapter 10. All along the way, he's thinking about the cross, what he's going to do for them. They're all along the way thinking about themselves. And they're blind to what he's doing because they're so full of themselves, not because he doesn't speak clearly, but because they can't see clearly. And the ten with them, it's not just James and John alone. When the ten heard it, they were indignant, not because James and John didn't learn the lesson of chapter 9, but because they didn't get to Jesus first and make the request first. So Jesus teaches them again so graciously and so patiently. He called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Focus on these words. First, it's rulers. in, in, In the world in which we live, this is the same way. Our government is no different from any other government. People lord their power over those who don't have the power. They use it to enrich themselves. They use it to lift themselves up and to diminish those who are low. This is true in democracies and monarchies and every other form of human government. Even Solomon in Israel did this. It's not just peculiar to Gentile rule. Second one, it's great ones who are in authority, not people like you and me. It's people who are great. People who are the smartest, people who are the most strongest people who are the best-looking people who have the uh, best uh, bloodlines or the most money that they've inherited or whatever whatever we use to identify someone as great they're the ones who are given authority in human kingdoms but not so in Jesus' kingdom but it shall not be so verse 43 among you whoever would be great among you must be your servant Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. I love uh, when sometimes, just by happy coincidence, English and Greek preserve something, uh, servant and slave. In Greek, it's diakonoi and douloi. And there's that you know, becoming a servant, becoming a slave. That just that sound, that assonance that um, draws these ideas together and this progression. That if we're to follow our Lord... Through the baptism he will undertake, and through the cup that he will uh, take, not the particular way he did. Well, we need to remember that the one again who is the Son of Man, who receives that glorious kingdom, is the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord came to serve us. So the same thing is ought to be true of those who are his in his subjects in his kingdom. We adopt that same mindset, not the gentilic mindset of exercising authority and lordship seeking personal greatness, but one who becomes a servant, even a slave of all, of everyone. It's clear, it's simple, it's straightforward, but it's not easy to do. We always find reasons why we we excuse ourselves to not do it. But whenever we have a reason why, well, in this particular case, this person is too low or I'm too busy or I've got this in front of me, we come back to that language of son of man we remember Daniel 7. You see, even... For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We have echoes of Isaiah 53 there the words for many. We have that ransom language so important. Leon Morris has written a book all about this in similar terms called The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. Ransom language always conveys that someone stands as a substitute for others gives his life as a ransom for many that's what the son of man came to do and so we are called to do likewise doesn't mean that because this is an example for us that the cross has no other meaning in fact it's because the cross has all of this meaning because he died for us in our, in our place he absorbed the wrath of god for us therefore we are called to go and do likewise if we are his people who are redeemed by his blood That's greatness in the kingdom. It's not about sitting in a choice place next to a throne or at a a dinner table. It's about serving. When we think we've served enough, it's about realizing that we've never served enough. We've never loved enough. We can always love more and serve more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for this glorious truth of the cross and we ask O Lord that you would so work in our hearts and our minds to impart these things these precious truths upon us that we might truly be become people who go and do your word we might be people who don't seek first our glory and our kingdom but seek first the kingdom of your son by seeking to serve even the least and the last. May we truly become servants like he was for our sake. May we be a people who trust fully and finally in the finished work of Christ on the cross all our days. Forever and ever, we pray. O Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.